for Thursday, May 13th, 2021. This is, Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, addressing misinformation about the coronavirus shouldn't be focused on getting rid of it altogether. So we need to look at differently. This idea of war on something which aims at banishing is not going to work. Ahmed Prasad, a sociologist at Georgia Tech, joins me to discuss the value of understanding the deeper reasons why someone believes misinformation about COVID-19. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. Misinformation about the coronavirus has spread rapidly during the pandemic, but it's not helpful to think of it as something that can be vanquished, like an enemy in a war says Amit Prasad, a sociologist at Georgia Tech. He argues it's important to understand the social and historical reasons why someone might believe something. And he's with me now for more. Amit, thanks for talking with me. Thank you. I want to start just by asking about the inspiration for this work that you have done on misinformation surrounding the coronavirus pandemic. What was kind of the spark here for this work? This happened was that last year when the COVID-19 pandemic was uh, spreading, in fact, it started to rage by end of February, early March. What struck me was the misinformation and conspiracies had also been spreading just at that time as well. And this was not just in the United States, but it was all over the world, in different parts of the world. And they were also very connected in so many ways there was also what was happening was as a reaction, a lot of people were characterizing it as anti-science. And what happened was that once it was characterized as anti-science, it was also argued that there is a general anti-science feeling among a relatively large percentage of people. So the inspiration for me was twofold. One was that if we characterize these as through this broad category of anti-science and we approach it like that, What are we missing in this? Because what I was seeing here was that there were different ways people were framing the same misinformation, like anti-mask one or anti-vaccine one. So what does it mean even to call it anti-science? So what I started doing was I started looking into these various conspiracies and how they were being framed. And there were two questions that basically I was very uh, focused on. One was, 
how were the COVID-19 misinformation and conspiracies being framed in relation to science? And second was whether the misinformation and conspiracies were being framed and interpreted differently by different social groups. If that was your approach, you want to look at these two points. How is this misinformation being framed and what can we do to combat it? Give me an example for, say, a piece of misinformation and how you came to understand how people understand it. When I was looking at these different misinformation, one particular one uh, caught my attention. This was a video titled Plandemic, which had gone viral it's a 26 minutes video and it's a very slickly done video. What I did was I did a short by short analysis of how the misinformation was being framed. And what struck me was that how it was using the credibility of science, scientists and scientific groups in order to make those false claims. So, for example, it overplayed uh, Dr. Judy Mikovits, who is being interviewed in that video's scientific achievements and did not mention how her paper was retracted, but used the credibility of the journal Science to show that how the claim she's making in relation to anti-mask or against the vaccine was actually something to trust. And what I saw here was very strikingly that rather than being anti-science, the arguments was that how we need to go to the purer version of science because science has been overtaken by this connection of industry and pharma companies and other things and that's where it has become impure. So in some places it was even being compared, her video was being compared to like the way Galileo had resisted. So this is a kind of an example wherein I see how science, scientists and the credibility of them was being used to uh, basically make the anti-science claims. That's very interesting. And, and we've seen this in other kinds of misinformation. Someone who might have in their past had some kind of connection to the scientific establishment used that as a way to gain credibility with an audience. So you would argue that that's not anti-science. If it's not that, then how would we frame that? So here is the thing, the question that was arising, and this goes back to the first question you asked, that when I had heard about this characterization of anti-science, I was also thinking that the same people are using cars, computers, cell phones, which are all evident reminders of scientifically proven artifacts. So these people in the first instance, whoever are making these claims, cannot be characterized in general as anti-science. But the point then becomes for me is that rather than looking at this broad category, which becomes meaningless, we look at very specifically anti-vaccine, anti-mask, and there are differences that come about. Once I saw this, uh, this idea that, okay, they are using the credibility of, uh, people are using the credibility of science, scientists, and scientific journals to make the anti-science claims. What I also started looking is that whether there are differences which are there in the same misinformation being interpreted. So the question for me here is that how do we look at more specifically, rather than calling it anti-science, we'll call it only anti-vaccine, or we call it anti-mask. And there are differences in the groups of people who are believing in them. There are different intersections that is happening here. 
You make the argument that there are actually social and even historical factors why groups of people might buy into certain pieces of misinformation. So talk with me a little bit more about that. So one thing I found was that if we leave aside what the information was, whether it is wrong or right, what struck me is that when it was being interpreted, people were drawing from their individual and social experiences. Very often what was happening in the social groups, historical experiences were getting entwined in this process. So for example, when the misinformation that had spread with regards to why Africa is not witnessing so many cases, initially the misinformation was that, oh, it is because of melanin, which is there. That is what is leading to less cases of COVID in Africa, for example. Just to clarify here, melanin skin pigment found in in higher quantities in darker skinned people, the idea being that that was somehow tied with lower rates of infection in in Africa. Mm -hmm. But what I started seeing here was that this was being interpreted and spread in a wide variety of ways based on African-American experiences when it was in the U.S. context. So the point in a sense here for me was not simply the fact that we need to see this to understand what misinformation is, but rather how misinformation gets accepted and spread. And a parallel point here for me is that unless we are going to address these two questions, what are the different social bases through which people are interpreting and spreading this misinformation, it'll be very hard to tackle the misinformation and conspiracies because otherwise people form two completely opposed groups. So if this is the way, a way to frame why people believe certain pieces of misinformation, how does that lead to a practical approach to convincing people of correct information, uh, disabusing them of, of their wrong beliefs? We cannot dismiss the misinformation and conspiracies, even though they are wrong, in the sense of the fact that we have to come to live with them. In the way we are living in the social media connected world that we are there and all, these acquire very powerful meanings as well as ways of holding on to certain things. So we need to study them carefully rather than just dismiss them as anti-science and our objective then becomes only spread of right information. That is an important part. But the second part then which becomes very important when we study is to see the social patterns. And we act then in a local way where we mobilize local leaders in order to address these questions rather than having a top-down approach of just saying that, oh, it is anti-science, let's spread the proper science information. So, for example, when we see, let's say, a particular, let's say, church group, church going group in a small town who are, let's say, believing in a certain way, a large number of people are not wanting to get vaccinations. We need to find out what are the various kinds of reasons and alignments here of interest, why they are not doing it. And from there, we use some local people over there who are influential to act on it. So in that sense, what happens here is that when CDC is doing it, it also brings along local people, community people, as well as social scientists who are working on and who have done ample research with regard to misinformation conspiracies. And we have a more holistic approach towards it rather than a top-down saying that, oh, if we spread the right uh, scientific information, everything will be fine. Because evidently that's not working. 
This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with Amit Prasad, a sociologist at Georgia Tech, about the value of understanding some of the deeper reasons why people believe misinformation about COVID-19. It seems what you're arguing for is a very empathetic approach to combating misinformation, one that's really based on understanding the deeper reasons why a certain group might believe something. Indeed. I feel that when we were characterizing people who were believing in misinformation and conspiracies, we were characterizing them as though they were dupes and crazies who have just lost their mind, who are not understanding. But we got to understand these people are also very sensible people in how they manage their own day-to-day lives. So the question arises is that why on certain things they take certain stances? And that is where the social basis of these interpretation is very important, because it allows us to understand that what are the different interests which is propelling them towards that misinformation and conspiracies, rather than just having a kind of a blanket category that they are against science, because that somehow doesn't seem to work. So the empathetic view here is first to not to characterize them as though they are dupes or crazy or anything of that kind, but to look into those particular interests, particular concerns they have. And we may not be able to mitigate those concerns. But as you rightly said, just an empathetic approach itself might allow us, even if not to change everybody, but ways to enter into a discourse. Because as of now, it has almost become oppositional. Misinformation takes different forms. We're talking about misinformation in the context of a pandemic, of a deadly disease, which I think uh, raises the stakes, we can say. And I wonder what you think about um, something that I often think about that people might have heard of as the uh, tolerance paradox, that if, say, someone has an idea that is antithetical to the common good, you can't necessarily be tolerant of that idea uh, because it lets it bloom in certain ways. The idea that to be tolerant, you have to be intolerant of intolerance. So how does that play in here? Because I think there's a listener who might hear this and say, well, someone believing misinformation is going to hurt me, potentially. You're absolutely right. So here the issue is not of accepting the misinformation and the conspiracies which are there. It is about just being empathetic to the person having certain interests in actually believing in those misinformation and conspiracies rather than they being seen as either crazy or dupes. So, for example, we are trying to study that how actually it spread, let's say, whether there were nodes like of certain people, influencers, or certain cities, certain places, how they were moving around, then what happens is we are able to act on it much more fast and we are trying to bridge ways so that we can make intervention. Now, I completely agree with you. This does not at all in any way means that accepting that misinformation. What I am in a sense trying to say here is that sometimes there is a disconnect which we have in terms of trying to see that a particular information is correct or not and why we believe in it. What I mean by this is that the representation or so to say the information may be wrong but people may be believing because of certain other reasons as well. So if we act quickly enough, understanding fully well that misinformation and conspiracies are here to stay 
And how do we act quickly enough to reach out people to look at those various ways they're interpreting so that we can act quickly, we can get to the right persons, we can have acting on it rather than just trying to see that, okay, we can put a stop to it just if we spread the proper scientific information, because obviously that has not worked. It almost sounds like you're proposing we should have been doing something with the misinformation surrounding COVID-19, some kind of surveillance and, uh, akin to the surveillance that public health officials are doing, say, for new variants of the virus. So I would agree with you. And I there are people who have made the claim that what the world we are living in is declassified or characterized it as uh, viral modernity because of the kind of connected world we live in. And so what happens in the connected world is that the misinformation travels fast. So the point, in a sense, I would again reiterate here is that what we need to do here is to engage, not really the surveillance, because surveillance means, again, a kind of a way wherein we find out who are the people who are the non-believers or who are against or so, and we act like that. My, in a sense here, is the engagement part. In the sense, we study it, we find out, okay, how it is spreading, what are the kinds of alignments which are coming in a sense here, and we act very quickly to engage people. Have you seen any good examples of this uh, from any kind of public official really anywhere during the course of this pandemic, whether that's at the state, federal or international level, this, this kind of engagement that you're calling for? I did not see that much of this because of the fact that, one, that uh, the pandemic just struck us so hard and so quickly and it was so unimaginable in terms of our daily lives. We had Nobody has imagined that, OK, for one and a half years, we would be stuck inside. So it was almost conducted on war footing. And so people were, and administrators, as well as policymakers, medicine people, they, they've been acting on war footing in so many different ways. So my concern in a sense here would be that going on as we move forward, misinformation and conspiracies would be there to stay. So what we do is as we make plans for pandemics in the future, we add to it that misinformation and conspiracy would be there And how do we study different aspects of it, just the way we study the pandemic, so that we can act and engage very effectively right from the start, rather than waiting for it. Like the pandemic video, what it did was it not only made the video viral, not only the video become viral, thereafter, the book that was published by this particular person who was the focus of that video, that book also became viral on Amazon. It was not selling that well before. So what you start seeing is that it starts having this kind of a cascading effect, and then it becomes really hard to control. But I have not seen explicitly people just engaging with this empathetic way in the sense of the fact not accepting their truthfulness, but rather accepting that we need to engage with the people more empathetically to understand what are their interests, motivations in terms of the interpretation and not to see them only in behavioral terms, but in social terms. That's asking a lot when we have been in this kind of war footing against this this pandemic. It it seems like that's a hard uh, kind of shell to break out of thinking of things that way. That is true. In fact, even with regard to pathogens, there have been debates where biologists and medicine people have talked about that the whole concept of war and pathogens is not going to work. 
because of the fact that parasites, for example, they are part of our body in such integral ways. So we need to orient differently, considering that with climate change and other things, there might be other kinds of mutants which might spread faster. So what we need to do, I completely agree, we need to look at differently. This idea of war on something which aims at banishing is not going to work because we live in such a socially connected world and that also so instantaneously connected world. It will spread and there will be people who would spread misinformation and conspiracies. That's such an interesting... uh... I don't want to use the word paradigm shift because I feel like it's so overused, but that's but that's such an interesting approach to thinking about it in that a war has a winner. And you're not the first person I've talked with on this podcast who has said, we're going to be dealing with future pandemics because they're part of living a life on this planet. <laughs> you know, we're always going to have these pathogens. And so instead of trying to squash them, it's maybe more of an idea of learning to coexist in a way that reduces the burden on us. And this is so striking. For example, I, I, I'm struck by a, a comment that Dr. Fauci made just a f- few days ago. It's just a very simple, trivial example, but just struck me so wonderfully, rather. The example he gave was that if the virus does not spread, it will not mutate. So if you think of it, if we integrate the social with what is happening with the biological in the sense of not allowing spread in certain ways, or like we, if we had just washed our hands or if we, had, if we had not spread, we could have even controlled the mutants. So it, that is the kind of a thing rather than just trying to like the countries which tried to like have a very strong, like one, this thing that, okay, we'll have a lockdown, this, that, and completely banish it. It did not work as we saw in India's case, we are seeing right now. They went on a very, very strong lockdown measure or so. And they thought, okay, it was all gone. It's come back. And the second wave is worse. And the same you would argue with misinformation. I would argue the same thing with misinformation and conspiracy. Let me be clear here. It's not that it does not bother me. It bothers me a lot. And that is why I decided to study it. The idea here is not to tolerate the wrong information, but rather to tolerate and understand and engage with what are the different kinds of interests which are propelling, one, certain interpretations, and two, the spread of those. So I would completely agree with you that war on misinformation and conspiracies also is not going to work. The issue for us would be how do we create transparent platforms which actually brings out these various conspiracies and misinformation quickly enough so we can grapple with it and act on it quickly. Amit Prasad is a sociologist at Georgia Tech. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening.
you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.